Our scripture reading today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 through 24, and this is found on page 955 in the Pew Bible. And also, if you don't have um, a Bible at home, please feel free to take one from the pews. Um, we would love for you to have one um, in your home as a gift from us. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Bill Gorman, and I'm the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus. And thank you so much for joining us this morning. And um, coming together to worship as a church family. If you are new, so glad that you're here and that you've chosen to be with us this morning. And would love to say hi to you afterwards. Um, as we begin looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, the continuing to look at that we began last week, um, I'd love to just take a moment and pray and ask for the Spirit of God, ask for His help as we uh, hear the Word proclaimed, that He would be at work uh, touching and, and changing our hearts. So let's do that right now. Father in heaven, we're so grateful that um, you have given us the gift of your word, that you teach us through it, that you challenge us through it. I pray that uh, by the power of your spirit, everyone, including myself, Father, that we would be open um, to hearing how you would desire to speak and change and challenge us. Would we have the faith to obey and follow after you? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, have you ever felt like a disappointment? Like you squandered your potential or that you thought you'd be further along in your life goals by now? Sort of as each semester passes or each life milestone or each year passes, it provides an opportunity to wonder, does my life really matter? Am I, am I really making a difference? Or, or is it too late to fulfill that desire, that dream, that goal that I've had? I mean, maybe you, maybe you spent years preparing for a career. You did college, graduate school, internships, only to find yourself now as a stay-at-home parent doing nothing that you thought you'd be doing. Or, or maybe you finished school with, with great plans of making a difference in the world in your field of study. And now you're just struggling to pay student loans while you wait tables. And you are always going to quit your job and start a company. Build the next social enterprise, that, that lean startup for the common good. You're still working in that same corporate cube farm. 
And, and now you're more beholden than ever to the necessary benefits and paycheck that that, that job provides. Maybe you're a junior or senior in high school and, and you're looking at colleges and you're starting to regret, you're wishing, man, I, I wish I would have done more earlier on to make myself more appealing to colleges and employers. And, and perhaps more than in our time today, more than in any other time, we, we feel this pressure to, to perform, to accomplish something, to be someone, especially if you're a high school student applying to college. David Brooks in his book on Paradise Drive, one of my favorites, he discusses this phenomenon with this characteristic wit and insight. This is what he writes. This is all around the country. One's peers and college admission competitors are taking AP courses, winning trophies in social studies Olympiads, leading debate teams, managing their acapella groups, international tour, getting accepted into honor societies, and performing hours upon hours of resume-enhancing, legally mandated, yet seemingly altruistic community service. And then I love this. He quotes the president of George Washington University who observes, I don't know where these kids find lepers, but they find them and they read to them. <laughs> you see, an ordinary life has become a disappointing life. A life that's fallen short of its potential. But what I want us to hear this morning from this passage of scripture that we just heard read is that God is not disappointed with your life. God is not disappointed with your life. You see, God is with you where you are. He has called you to himself right where you are today, this year, this decade. Right now, he's called you to himself. You can love and please and serve him right where you're at, even today. He isn't waiting on you to start the next big thing or to finally get to that next stage or that next season. He has called you where you are. He is with you where you are. He's not disappointed with the life he's called you to. Now, just to be clear, I don't mean that God somehow automatically approves of every thought or action or decision you have. Um, there's lots of stuff in my life and your life that he is working to change and to conform but what I mean is that he's not disappointed in the place in life with which he's called you to himself. Now I realize that might not sound like good news. Because maybe you want things in your life to change. When we come to, life, uh, come to Christ, we have assumptions about how our lives will change. That, that maybe things will get easier, things will get better. Things will get less complicated. You'll receive a, a calling, a life purpose, and you'll, you'll finally be happy. A spouse, a job, a child, whatever it might be. And then you don't. And then you wonder, well, what good is Christianity? What good is faith if my life just looks the same? And these are the same sorts of questions that the Corinthians were wondering about as well. Marriage, work, social status, ethnic identity. Do these things need to change in order for me to be a follower of Jesus? And the answer that Paul gives us in this passage is a resounding no. You see, God is not disappointed with your life. What Paul shows in these verses is that what this means is that in order to please God, in order to follow Him, you don't have to be someone else. You don't have to do something different. And you don't have to prove your worth. 
In order to follow God's call, in order to please Him, you don't have to be someone else. You don't have to do something different. You don't have to prove your worth. So first, in order to please God and follow His call, you don't have to be someone else. Take a look at verses 17 and 20 again. Because Paul writes this, he says, Only let each person lead the life that God has assigned him and to which God has called him. And then he says, this is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. Good news for those people. Uh, for neither circumcision counts, nor anything, or uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Now these verses are key to understanding the entirety of... 1 Corinthians chapter 7, both what we looked at last week when Paul was talking about marriage and divorce and, and what he's going to talk about in the passage we'll look at next week on singleness. This little chunk in the middle, these few verses, shape the whole of that chapter. So we don't want to miss this. And here's how one commentator, Craig Blomberg, he summarizes the point of verse 17 this way. He says, the entire verse implies that in whatever state we were in when we came to the Lord, we should function faithfully in that state without immediately trying to change it. And then Paul gives an example in verse 18 and 19. He gives the example of circumcision. And in the ancient world, this was one of the most notable markers of what group you belonged to. It was, it was an external marker of your ethnic identity. And, you know, in the ancient world, you had uh, public baths, you had sort of these Olympic-style games, and so it was actually something that people saw on occasion. And depending on who was in the majority culture, you wanted to erase that sign so you could blend in. And so today, the equivalent is often color, the color of your skin or the accent that you speak with. Those things that, even though we might want to try to change them, we just can't try. We, we, we can't succeed. They're markers of who we are, what group that we belong to. When I was in Kenya in October, I was reminded of this vividly. Because I was, while I was walking through this, the crowded sleep streets of the Karibagi slum, I, I wished desperately that I could blend in. Because I looked nothing like anyone who lived there. Everything was different about me. My skin, my language, even my accent as I spoke English to other English speakers. We had to have people translate English to English. And Paul's overall point here is this. Is God is not waiting for you to become someone else to use your life. God's not waiting for you to become someone else to use your life. Were you a Jew? Were you a Gentile? Were you black, white, Latino, Asian? Great. Your primary calling as a follower of Jesus isn't affected at all. You see, Christianity by its definition is cross-cultural. There's, there's no need to adopt your culture to a new one. God affirms who he's made you to be. God saved you as uncircumcised or circumcised. He saved you as a white woman or as a black man, as a Latino, as an Asian. You are meant to live out that culture, that ethnicity. God isn't disappointed with that. However, as a Christian, your primary identity changes. Because you're not only your culture. None of us are. 
It's something about you. It's, it's an important part of everything, but it's not everything about us. Are you married? Single? Kids? No kids? Single parent? Widow? Divorced? Separated? Young? Old? Smart? Sick? Weak? Great job? Miserable job? God's not waiting for any of those things to change in order to use you. God's not waiting for you to become someone else to use your life. Are you? See, how many of us are praying only that God would change our present circumstances? God, my life is awful right now. Would you please change it? But Paul says in verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. We want God to change our lives, and then we get frustrated when he doesn't. But God is saying, I called you there. I have equipped you there. I've gifted you where you are. I'm not disappointed in the life I've called you to, and you shouldn't be either. You see, in fact, we focus too much on on what we could do or what we will do or what we can do when we reach some next stage or life hurdle. We actually short-circuit what God is doing in us and through us right now. What he's called us to at this very moment. Theologian Michael Horton is really perceptive at this point. He, He wrote a book called Ordinary, and I just want to read you a little bit of it. He says, our big idea is to change the world can become ways of actually avoiding the opportunities we have every day, right where God has placed us, to glorify and enjoy Him and to enrich the lives of others. Then he continues, sometimes the best way to change the world is to live extraordinarily in what looks like an ordinary existence, to radically love and serve those around us every day, no matter where we are. God isn't asking us to become someone else. He's asking us to obey Him right where we are. This is the whole point of verse 19 when Paul says, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. God desires obedience right where you are. He isn't asking that you change who you are, be someone else to change who you are. He says, Just obey me where I've placed you. It's easy for us to ask the question, can God really use me? Maybe you think, I'm too young for God to use me. I'm still in high school. I'm still in middle school. I'm still in elementary school. Can God really use me? But you can make a difference, and it doesn't mean having to find lepers to read to. (laughs) How are you loving and serving your family, your brothers and sisters, your, your friends and classmates? Are you developing habits and Patterns that will shape you into the sort of person who's courageous and compassionate, who's brave and tender. Or maybe on the other hand, you're here this morning and you think, I'm too old for God to use me. And this is one of our greatest fears, right? As people, as we get older, that that somehow we'll become irrelevant, that there won't be a place for us anymore, that we're no longer useful, that, that we'll be dependent. And yet, you, no matter what age you are, can contribute, love, serve, pray, encourage, make opportunity for the next generation. 
God is not disappointed with your age, young or old. Or maybe you think, Pell, you, you just don't know me. I'm too mature for God to use me. I'm too new a Christian. Or I've got too many bad habits. I've got too many of these sins in my life. God can't use me. But God has called you right where you are. He isn't waiting for you to grow up so he can finally use you. In fact, he desires to use you as part of the process of helping you grow into the person that he's made you to be. You don't have to be someone else to follow God's call. He can use you right now, right where you are. Next, Paul shows us that you also don't have to do something different to follow God's call. So look again at verses 21 and 22. Paul says, were you a bond servant when called? Do not be concerned about it. If you have opportunity to gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he was free when called as a bondservant of Christ. And Paul's point again here is that you don't have to do something different in order to follow and obey God. And slavery used here is this is the absolute lowest position you could get in the Roman culture. Now, this is different than the slavery that we usually imagine when we think of slavery in the American South in the 1800s. But it's still slavery, and it definitely had its abuses. And a quick side note on this as well. This passage in no way, it's important to point out, in no way does this passage support the institution of slavery as a positive good. Though people in the past have tried to use it that way. I mean, quite the opposite. Paul says clearly here later on, don't become a slave. And he says, if you have a chance to be free as a slave, take that opportunity. By all means. Bible's not pro-slavery. But the Bible's also a realistic book, not an idealistic book. And Paul knows as he's writing this letter to the Corinthians, not every slave who hears it read is going to have the chance to immediately be free the next day. And so his point is that even if you're stuck in the midst of slavery, God can still use you. And if that's true of slavery, then it's certainly true of your job. You don't have to do something different in order to follow God's call. He isn't disappointed in the job in which you find yourself doing. He can use you right where you are. Now again, this doesn't mean that you shouldn't ever look for another job or a different job. I mean, Paul makes it clear, if you're miserable in your work, if you have a chance to change that, by all means, do it. Find another job. And again, I doubt if any of us are, are truly slaves in the sense that Paul is addressing here. But the truth is also many of us have enslaved ourselves to our work because of the demand for a particular lifestyle. And as a result, you work far more than is good for you or healthy for those you love. But you can't quit the mortgage you have, the car payments, the tuition payments, the home equity loan, all that must be made. You'd like a different job, but you can't quit. Now, others of you are, are kind of on the other side of that. 
You're working two or three, maybe even four part-time jobs just to make ends meet. And you would do anything if you just had one good full-time job with benefits. But to both situations, Paul says the same thing. I mean, change it if you can. Do it as soon as you can. But tomorrow, Monday morning, when you go into work, or those three or four jobs, God is with you right there. And he's using you right through the wall. You don't have to do something different to follow God's call. And again, Paul is clear here. Bond servants, this is the lowest possible job. And Paul says, even they, in this lowest possible jobs, are incredibly important to God. Even that, in God's eyes, is meaningful work. And that would have been an incredibly hopeful outlook in an ancient world where you didn't have a lot of choice in what your career was. There wasn't lots of upward mobility in ancient Rome. There weren't job and career fairs. You mostly did what your parents did. And if your parents were slaves, you were probably going to be a slave too. And again, Paul isn't validating slavery, but he's saying, God is saying here that, that in his eyes, even the work of slaves is meaningful work. He's validating the human dignity of all work and the spiritual value of every job. If God can use that job, he can certainly use your job. And if you're a stay-at-home mom or dad, if you're a stay-at-home parent, you, you, you feel this a lot, don't you? What am I, what am I doing with my life? Feels like all I do is change diapers and fight a losing battle to keep the house clean. God isn't disappointed in the place he's called you. You don't have to do something different to please him. So can God really use my work? Wherever you are doing with the majority of your life right now, whatever it is that you're doing with the majority of your life, God wants to use it. You see, God doesn't use your life in segments or sections. There isn't sort of your church life, and this is where God is kind of using you if you happen to be serving in some way on a Sunday morning. All of your life is sacred to God, and He wants to use all of it, including your work. And even if your work doesn't look spiritual, it is. Paul is reminding us that we need to see our workplace not as just a place we work, but a place where God is truly at work. And there's a contentment that comes in that that even the best job can't give you. But again, you might be thinking, I'm just not sure if I buy this. I mean, sure, I can see that applies to, to a doctor who's saving lives or a teacher who's educating children or, or even a stay-at-home mom or dad who's raising kids and helping to form them into these great human beings. But, but you don't know my job, though. I don't do anything to help anybody. I'm just sitting in a cube where I work in a factory line. I mean, those people are making a difference, but, but not me. But here's the thing about work. All work is almost much more helpful than we first realize. And in fact, almost any kind of work is extremely helpful. So think about this. For example, Lester de Coster is an author, thinker, puts it this way. I think this is so helpful. He says, look at the chair, or in this case, the pew, that you're lounging in. Could you have made it for yourself? 
how would you get, say, the wood? Go fell a tree, but only after first making the tools for that and then putting together some kind of vehicle to haul the wood and constructing the mill to do the lumber and roads to drive from place to place. In short, it would take a lifetime or two to make one chair or pew. He says if we worked for 40, not for 40, but for 140 hours per week, we couldn't make ourselves from scratch even a fraction of all the goods and services that we call our own. Our paycheck turns out to buy us the use of far more than we could possibly make for ourselves in the time it takes us to earn the check. Work yields far more in return upon our efforts than our particular jobs put in. Imagine if everyone working quit right now. What happens? Civilized life quickly melts away. Food vanishes from cells. Gas dries up at the pumps. Streets are no longer patrolled. Fires burn themselves out. Communication and transportation services end. Utilities go dead. In other words, he concludes, the difference between a wilderness and culture is simply work. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, there may be no better way to love your neighbor, and I would add there may be no better way to serve God as well. Whether you are writing parking tickets, software, or books, than to simply do your work. You see, joining, just doing your work and doing it well is an intensely spiritual and helpful thing. And God can use it right now. Dorothy Sayers says the only Christian good work, or the only Christian work is good work well done. Some of you really want to see your work in this way. But it isn't the work that you really like to be doing. You're stuck in a job you don't like, and, and a bad economy over the past few years hasn't helped with that, right? You're working, but you have a hard time believing God can use it because, well, you don't like it. It isn't meaningful work to you. But the thing is, we don't all get to do what we love all the time. And if you're doing what you love, and many of you are, praise God for that. But there are seasons, and sometimes there are really long seasons when you're doing something that you'd rather not be doing. We don't all love what we do, but we can learn to love what we do if we trust that God has put us there for a purpose. I think every one of us has had a bad job at some point, but none of us here has had anything near the kind of a job that was the slave had. And Paul is saying, if God can use that job, then he can use your work too. And this is something that one of our congregation members at the downtown campus slowly began to realize, and it really changed everything about the way he viewed his work. And so I'd love for you to take a look at this video. The work journey on the assembly line is really emotional because there's, there's no hiding. You know, every morning, if someone's having a bad day, you, you really know they're having a bad day. When I came out here and got on the assembly line, it was it was so completely different than what I was doing in Ohio. And my fellow worker right on the assembly line, you're working with people two or three feet, five of you, four of you, within a five-foot footprint, and uh, you get to know one another. It was through prayer that you know that uh, we wrote these letters to the, the big dogs and asked them if I could come to Kansas City, and my home church prayed, and within two weeks we got that that answer as I uh, did 
did more and more years of service on the line, and becoming familiar with uh, problem-solving issues. Uh, I, I got a promotion to a UAW negotiated job called the Mutilation Monitor, and uh, you problem-solve. Why is this dent happening, or why is this scratch happening? Just a couple years ago, I started hearing messages from the pulpit about how important work is. And uh, it made me feel so good because I, I'm, I'm an hourly worker and uh, a union worker. It's not a very glamorous job, but um, through the messages that work, or the church, excuse me, the church, um, I started to feel good about it and realizing how much, I realized it before, but really thinking about it, how much when we have work, we're working for the king. And so when you're asked, something is asked of you, and you have the mindset, you're doing this for the Lord, it, it changes, it's a game changer. It, 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 I find myself um, trying to do things for those with authority above me and not get caught in doing it. I, uh, I think they would mention they need something, something done, and I would try to go do it without them seeing that I was doing it. As I matured and, and, and learned and looked at other people in any profession, um, everyone really wants to perform the best you know, for those who they serve. And um, I didn't always think that. But when you see that, it's exciting. So you don't have to be someone else. You don't have to do something different in order to please and follow God's call in your life. You also don't have to prove your worth. And Paul puts it this way, beginning in verse 22. He says, For who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he was called, was free when he was a bondservant of the Lord, is a bondservant of Christ. When you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. And he says, So brothers and sisters, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Paul's saying, if you are a slave, then you're a full citizen of Christ. And if you're a full citizen of Rome, you're actually a slave in Christ. In other words, your value, your worth, your standing with God, which all are different ways of talking about what it means to be justified, to have righteousness have absolutely nothing to do with who you are and what you do. Nothing. You see, the world roots value in who you are and what you do. Right? In, the, in the modern Western world, our culture, what's the first question you ask someone when you meet them after you find out their name? Well, what do you do? Your worth is tied up in how you answer that question. And we live in a world that's enslaved to proving its own worth through family, through work, through your clan, through your ethnic identity. And that's why Paul says here, don't become a bondservant to men. Don't, don't be enslaved like our culture is. The reason you don't have to be somebody else or do something different or prove your worth is because you were bought with a price. So you don't have value on your own. You have value because it was imputed to you. It was reckoned to you. It was credited to you because of the sacrifice of Christ. His righteousness, his value, his standing is now yours. You don't have to use your age, your paycheck, your marriage, your singleness, your kids to prove your worth. It was proven for you. You were bought with a price. 
So the question is, what am I worth? What am I worth? And don't miss this. Because value is determined by how much someone is willing to pay. Right? I mean, this is, this is basic economics. Value is determined by how much someone is willing to pay. Do you want to know how much someone was willing to pay for you? God sent his son Jesus, his only son, to die for you, to pay for you, to ransom you so that he might use your life right now. You have infinite value because an infinite price was paid for you. And you know what? Because of that, God is not ashamed of where you are. And he's not ashamed to be with you where you are. Paul says, wherever God has called you, stay there with God. Remain there with him. God is already where you are right now, and he's not disappointed in you. He's not ashamed to work with you, whatever that looks like. He's not embarrassed by how old you are. He's not waiting on you to grow up. He's not even waiting for you to fix your problems before he can use you. You know why? Because when he looks at you, if you've trusted Christ, he sees Jesus. And that's an incredibly powerful thing. Because you've been given a status and a worth that no amount of money, no amount of popularity, no amount of fame, no job description can ever give you. You've been given the worth of being called a son or daughter of God. God is not disappointed with your life. You can't be either. You've been bought with a price. You are infinitely valuable. Father in heaven, we're grateful that you, in the mystery of what is only your love and your unfathomable grace, have taken creatures who rebelled against you, wanted nothing to do with you, and sent your very son to buy us back, to purchase us, to ransom us, to free us, to rescue us, so that we never have to prove our worth. Would we live out of a deep understanding of how much we are loved, knowing that you are not disappointed in the life that you have called us to? In Jesus' name.